Here at the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute, we host a special annual lecture in honor of the late Harish C. Mahindra, a distinguished alumnus of Harvard College and a major industrialist in India. In October 2017, the Mahindra lecture was delivered by Arun Jaitley, India's Minister of Finance and Corporate Affairs. I normally get an opportunity twice every year to be in the United States. And on each occasion, uh, when I come for the bank and the fund meetings, I normally spend two to three days extra either visiting universities or some think tanks uh, or some of the business chambers interacting with different people. And I'm not so sure why uh, either at my office's initiative or Professor Khanna, the subject became tax reforms because uh, the other subjects, uh, 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 the wider horizon, I think I've already had an opportunity to speak in the last two days on several occasions. So they must have probably thought that... Uh, 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 but I think uh, I'll try and cover some other subjects also. And when the interaction starts, uh, obviously the other areas that I look after... Anybody would be free to interact on um, any of those subjects. Uh, unquestionably, uh, and histori that historically we've had uh, one of the least efficient, or sluggish if I may say so, uh, tax system any country in the world could have. And uh, if we looked at the, uh, the constitutional mechanism in India, the direct taxes are normally collected by the central government. And in a large number of indirect taxes, uh, both the central government and the state government uh, had uh, jurisdictions in relation to different areas. There are no overlapping areas. And what has been our experience, we are in the 70th year of our independence, uh, post-demonetization, my first reaction in a public speech was that we are trying to change the new norm, the normal in India. The tax base is extremely, extremely narrow. This year, in my budget speech, I had put forward the data relating to the previous years in direct taxation. A country of uh, 124 5 crore people, 1.25 billion people, uh, with a very narrow tax base. And effectively, we had uh, a tax exemption limit up to 2.5 lakhs. You had a small amount of taxes being paid uh, up to 5 lakhs. Beyond 5 lakhs, when the real taxes used to start coming, the total number of people, and I'm not including companies in this, the companies are separate, who paid those taxes was 7.8 million, 78 lakhs. Of these 78 lakhs, some 61 or 62 lakhs were those 
who were in salaried employment. So their taxation was compulsorily deducted. So this entire universe of individuals in business, trade, malls, shopping arcade, lawyers, doctors, architects, professionals, people earning income from rent, in a 1.25 billion country who were paying beyond 5 lakhs, which was really some money coming into the state revenue, was 17 lakhs, 1.7 million people. And therefore, the tax base itself was extremely small. The normal was large amounts of cash currency moving in the system, transactions in cash, property purchases partly cash, partly in check, parallel account books for any business. And in a society which is otherwise uh, fairly religious, moralistic, considered itself ethical, this is one area where evasion was the rule. I've analyzed the data in indirect taxation for the first two months of the GST. And I found that uh, in the entire universe of, uh, and I'll explain what the indirect tax structure in India was. The indirect tax structure in India conventionally was that there were multiple taxes levied by the central government and multiple taxes levied by the state government on each SSE. 17 of those taxes have been now merged into the GST. And there are 23 cesses over and above the 17, so 14 all which have been merged into one tax. We had a total of about 8 million people who were registered under these different taxes. So again, out of 1.25 billion, we had 8 million, 80 lakhs, who were paying the business taxes itself. Many of them were overlapping because if you're in manufacturing and selling, you were registered for central excise with the central government, you were registered for VAT with the state governments. And now in the GST registrations, we've had uh, 7.2 million out of them migrate to the GST. We've added another 2.5 plus million new people who've been added because it's a more efficient system. So we are now close to about 9.8. We'll slowly be about 10 million. For the first month, so far we've had only 55, 5.5 million who paid that, who paid filed their returns. 40% of them have paid nil as tax. 95% of the taxation in the first two months has come from only 4 lakh, 400,000 SSEs. So even now the habit, tax-paying habit of, of paying very marginal or negligible amounts or not paying anything at all, tailoring your books accordingly is widely prevalent. So what is a challenge before a tax system? 
in a country of this kind. Obviously, you have uh, 12 to 15 million cars being bought every year. You have 20 million people traveling each year for overseas from the country. And if you compare it with the spending data, the base itself is extremely narrow, which indicates that there's a huge amount of tax not being paid. And eventually, one day you'll probably find that uh, there will have to be some linkage between the lifestyles and the expenditure and the taxation paid. At the end of the day, fortunately, the privacy judgment of the Indian Supreme Court uh, 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 carves out in uh, one of the judicial opinions given by the judges the revenue interest of the state as one of the exceptions to the law of privacy. And therefore, when you go and buy your car, you may probably have to give your UID number. When you book your international air ticket, you'll have to give your UID number. And therefore, it's quite possible within that framework to eventually, uh, 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 at least the judgment of one of the judges seems to permit a situation of that, that kind. Because that's the widespread evasion. The realization that a state needs revenue to survive. And where is this money spent? And if you see the breakup of Indian budgets, you spend some money on committed expenditure paying interest for all the loans governments take. That's inherent in deficit financing. Then you have a committed expenditure of national security and defense. Governments need to service themselves with the salaries and pensions and so on. And then you come down to a lot of developmental expenditure that you require. And that developmental expenditure really has to, in a country like India, support those sections which actually remain outside the growth story. And therefore, when you have a higher growth rate and obviously larger revenues with the government, you have to take off a large part of that revenue and spend it uh, on poverty alleviation schemes, on providing social infrastructure, or having... So it's very easy to comment that you must spend more on education, more on health, more on national security. But that's the money which has to come from this revenue. And that's the money which doesn't come because of this so-called normal which has existed, that we are not a compliant state. And frankly, over the last several decades, serious efforts to expand this base and real efforts have not been made. You've had marginal efforts. And therefore, we've, we've in the last few years tried to make very serious efforts in order to ensure that this base itself increases. And in order to increase the base, I'll just indicate. For instance, in direct tax this year, in order to incentivize people to come within that direct tax limit, so the lowest slab, if you grow beyond 2.5 lakhs, which is 10%, India has the lowest personal rate 
And no other country has that rate, we've said. So if you just have that kind of income and you enter, we created a slab of 5%. So you just pay 5%. And that 5% is also subject to various incentives that you have that if you are into savings uh, uh, or a particular kind of savings, then you get those deductions itself. So effectively, you can reach a, a reasonable income of some 50,000 or so per month and end up paying almost negligible tax or very little tax, but you come within the tax net. One of the great objects is to use technology. And technology serves two purposes. It serves the purpose of expanding the net, tracing down the expenditure. And I was checking up... Uh, the figures that we've now been able, till 31st March as a result of all these efforts, uh, been able to, as of 31st March this year, reach about 6.36 crore. And therefore, that's been a significant expansion, and a bulk of this expansion in the last three years has not come in the number of companies, it's come in the number of private individuals who are now coming more and more into the tax net. And amongst the steps, uh, one of the obvious steps was you take to assault this whole idea of a shadow economy that operates in India. The shadow economy that operates in India, so systematically we started the steps. The first step was that... Uh, we announced a scheme that whoever has assets abroad, bring it back, pay about 45% or 60% as tax. It was 60%, I remember, in that case. And uh, if you then get caught, the law provides for a severe sentence, a criminal punishment. Some monies came in. But gradually, the monies kept outside the country unlawfully, substantially have dipped because of the fear of that law. We then went and reviewed uh, each one of the treaties that we had with Mauritius, Cyprus, Singapore, which for the last three decades have actually been permitting round-tripping. And round-tripping means you siphon your own money out of India and through the, the flight of that money takes place outside, and then it was coming back through those routes itself. And those routes uh, prevented a double taxation. And there was a need to revisit them. Obviously, those countries uh, had some interest because uh, it created some investment in those countries. So it was quite a task getting them to uh, uh, revisit those treaties, which we have succeeded in doing that. We came out with an income disclosure scheme. Worked quite well. A large amount of money disclosed in that. And then, it's a typical case of how India has been half-hearted. There was a standard operating procedure which any chartered accountant in India would advise you if you were to establish a new company and have a large company, which was the setting up of these shell companies. Somehow, Calcutta used to be the home of these shell companies. Uh, 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 and uh, most of them, the chartered accountants would allow those shell companies. Now they're registered all over. There are many registered in other parts of the country also. So you s overprice your, your, your project. You siphon the cash out. 
you move it through the multi-layering of these companies, the companies continue to hold that investment, and then you bring it as your investment and say, this is my equity. This is actually money siphoned out of the, uh, the banking system itself. Part of the NPA problem has resulted out of this. And you had uh, a large number of tax advisors and chartered accountants who had made a living out of this. Obviously, you needed a Benami law because the face behind the company was somebody else's. Now, this law was passed in 1988. The law was never made operative. The law ministry said uh, the law lacks certain detailed procedures. And for almost uh, more than two and a half decades, we allowed it to just remain on the statute book without being implemented. I appointed an expert group, uh, brought all the amendments, had them cleared by Parliament. And I was grilled in Parliament as to the original law which contained only five or six sections. You are now replacing it with a long law. So why don't you repeal this and bring a new law? I said, no, I want to amend this law because the holding of Benami should be made effective from 1988. Otherwise, I'll have to start from 2016. So people during this 28-year uh, period will get a amnesty itself. So we passed the law, we put it operative. And not only businesses. You now have politicians. You have various people uh, with unlawful assets who have been uh, uh, operating in this manner who are coming in this law. And this law has both a provision for confiscation of those assets as also for a penal punishment. And after we took all these steps, there were curbs on expenditure. A lot of people, particularly in the luxury segment, the jewelry segment, they've all uh, resisted this, that the expenditure curb, that if you spend more than uh, 2 lakh rupees, in, uh, you have to dis disclose your PAN card details itself. And I said, why should I disclose them? Because uh, that itself acts as a disincentive against transacting in black money. Now, the result of this has been that it's pushed up, and then finally came the major step of demonetization. Now, the impact of demonetization was some people erroneously understand it, oh, the money came back into the banking system. Then the object of demonetization is not understood. The object of demonetization is not to confiscate somebody's currency. Obviously, if somebody has currency, and if he deposits it in a bank, it doesn't become lawful holding he will still have to account for it. And therefore, the anonymity which was attached to a cash currency, that anonymity came to an end, and that holding got identified with an individual. Now, we've been able to trace out about 1.8 million people through an operation Clean Money, whose deposits are disproportionate to their normal incomes. And they are all having to now answer the law, pay the taxes. So the result is we, by March, read, reached 62.6 million. And probably by 30th September, I don't have the exact data uh, till mid-year this year, uh, this figure would have jumped up a lot more. And therefore, India is moving closer. I, I still believe we are quite off the mark uh, as far as India's full potential as far as uh, uh, it's expanding the tax base is concerned.
The next question is how do you then address the issue of how is it generated? And it's generated uh, uh, in various e commercial transactions. And that's where what Professor Khanna just now referred to, the GST reform, and if it's fully implemented, its entire impact. That's the indirect tax. So the first object was that all these multiple taxes should be merged into one. Now, what is the object of this exercise? Taxation departments conventionally have been known to be extremely corrupt. So one of the answers in the income tax, both direct and indirect taxes, is to use technology and put the entire taxation process online. For instance, I'll, uh, on, on the direct tax side today, everybody files his individual return. Most people file it, 99.4% or so file it online. Of all personal income tax returns filed, they are processed. About 70% of them get their refunds within two weeks. Earlier, you used to have inspectors visiting you with checks and demanding money. You get your checks online. You get your queries online. You answer them online. And 99% today get their orders online. 1% go into scrutiny where there are questions. And for scrutiny, you are selected only on basis of a software where a lot of alerts have been put in. When does a person get scrutinized? You have a lot of cash transactions, you have a lot of property transactions, therefore the alerts will go up. How do we replicate the same system in indirect taxes? So step one, multiple taxes are merged into one. So the whole country gets economically integrated and therefore it permits a free flow of goods and services across the country. Otherwise, the rate of taxation in every state was different. Now, once the rate of taxation in every state was different, goods used to be stopped at the barrier point. And the first thing that happened overnight, within hours of the 1st of July, that all the barriers in the country disappeared. And therefore, the uh, uh, truck movement uh, uh, carrying goods became extremely fast. you now have no inspector to visit you. Your entire interface, which was with multiple authorities leading to corruption, now you've been left with an interface only with your own software. So each month, you feed in your details, which are required. And when you feed in your details, and every business feeds in its details, and once feeding details becomes a matter of habit for you, and you pay your taxes online. The second effect of this is that you claim an input credit for any tax paid at the interim stage. Therefore, no commodity at, of any kind of tax is paid twice over. Earlier, you were paying taxes twice over. You paid it at the interim stage, you paid it at the final stage. Now we still are noticing there are several industries which have passed on the ITC advantage to the consumer. The auto sector did it. There are some which haven't done it. The restaurants haven't done it. So on their pre-existing cost, they are still levying a GST. They must actually subtract 
the ITC from the pre-existing cost and then level the GST. So we are now reviewing each of these sectors as to how they are behaving. And at the end of the month, this is the first stage where we are on. The next important stage will be, as the software further develops, that you have to load your invoices. So the manufacturer's invoices, the distributor's invoices, the sub-distributor's invoices, and finally the retailer. The retailer doesn't put in invoices, he just gives his final sales. Because uh, on him the compliance burden is to be less. On the software, the matching of the invoices takes place. And therefore, from the very inception of purchase of the raw material, till the consumer point, the economic journey of uh, that product can easily be traced out. And if at any stage an evasion takes place, the software is capable of detecting it. Stage three, to beat the system, from the birth of a product till its final disposal, you deal entirely in cash. To beat that system the, will be the next stage, which will be now, in Karnataka it is being experimented at the moment, and between the 1st of January and the 31st of March, it will continue to expand all India, where there will be an e-way bill system. A truck is not checked physically, But the moment you load your goods on a truck and these are tax paid, you give your details on your software. And therefore on his mobile phone, the checking authority at any stage can check this truck in movement, carries uh, tax paid goods or otherwise. So the software itself, technology itself can determine it. And the stage, first stage, we found that uh, there was a scope for improvement because bulk of the tax is coming from the top 400,000 uh, taxpayers. And therefore the small ones, for them it was a new habit and they said, well, filing uh, returns every day, every month, uh, is a cumbersome process. It's a time-consuming process. We are not technologically equipped to do that. So we said, do it quarterly. Now, in order to make them get into the habit of paying tax, because that's one of the challenges in India. We have some very attractive uh, propositions for them. So if you are below one crore turnover, and you are a manufacturer, just pay 2% as composition, and your tax is compounded. If you're a trader, just pay 1%. If you're a small restaurant, up to one crore turnover, just pay 5% and that to be done with. Similarly, on the income tax side, up to 2 crore turnover, a trader, we've put uh, a 6% presumptive income. So if he trades 1.5 crores, then 9 lakhs is presumed to be his income and subject to whatever deductions he's entitled to, he must declare his income. Then he doesn't have to produce account books and all the cumbersome exercise. For professionals, we've said up to 50 lakhs a year which will probably cover 98 or 99% of professionals in India, uh, uh, we'll presume that 50% of your earning is expenditure. So please pay on the rest and don't maintain uh, books of account. So in direct tax, as also in indirect tax, 
to these segments to make sure that they get into the habit of entering the tax net. These uh, composition schemes have been put in place. Now, obviously, uh, uh, there will be some uh, feathers ruffled because uh, when you have an invoice uploading, it will immediately detect any stage of leakage. If you have an, uh, an e-way bill, it can detect any movement of non-tax paid goods. And therefore, some element of uh, resentment, uh, uh, which then expresses itself through a political voice, can take place. But fortunately for me, uh, uh, in the GST Council, we've been able to create uh, a very powerful uh, federal institution, which has so far taken all its uh, decisions in one voice. And therefore, once you are able to implement it, the big picture that will emerge is you make generation of cash difficult. In fact, in the next meeting itself, we are addressing one of the problem areas, or at least discussing it, because some of the states want someone, there are two views, and therefore by discussion we'll try to reach one view, that one sector in India where the maximum amount of evasion and cash generation takes place, which is still outside the GST, could be brought within the GST itself. And that is uh, real estate, because some of the states have been pressing for it, and I personally do believe that there is a strong case for bringing real estate into the GST. The consumers would stand to benefit hugely, and the consumers would stand to benefit hugely because uh, all tax paid on cement, steel, sanitary fittings, building material, electrical fittings, all that interim tax would eventually be deducted in the final tax to be paid. And therefore, final tax to be paid if the whole real estate in the, the GST would almost be negligible. Uh, 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 and therefore, that goes into the consumer interest, but it will probably shift the character of the industry uh, into a more tax-based uh, industry rather than an evading industry itself. So if you are able to check the generation, if you are able to uh, check the eventual expend uh, the expenditure, if you are able to incentivize more and more people from entering into the net, I think it's a process which is on where we are trying to make sure that the size of the shadow economy gets compressed to the extent possible and uh, 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 the reform itself takes place. Now, to do that, some of these decisions, particularly the GST was not an easy decision, the demonetization was not an easy decision, but if you see the long-term impact of it, the demonetization brought in uh, more digitalized transactions. It brought the issue to the center stage. It expanded the individual tax base. It has already, by over 3%, compressed the amount of uh, cash currency which was operating in the market. It was conventionally 12.5% of India's GDP. It's come down closer to 9% now. And therefore, it will continue to get compressed itself. So those objectives are being, for the long-term being met itself. There are uh, short-term challenges it throws up. But I think for, 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 for transforming India from a non-compliant to a more compliant society and to make sure that the country as a whole, state government, central government, local bodies, panchayats, have more resources for development, more resources for 
national security. I think these reforms are absolutely fundamental as far as India is concerned. 